Most people have probably never heard of Ella Baker. But she was one of the most important civil rights activists of the 20th century. During the 1940s, Miss Baker, as she came to be called, served as the NAACP's director of branches. In this capacity, she helped grow the organization's membership from 150,000 to 600,000. In the 1950s, she helped organize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s new organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She also spearheaded a major voter registration campaign for them called the Crusade for Citizenship. And in the 1960s, she guided the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She brought together sit-in activists such as John Lewis and Diane Nash to form the group and was the organization's most influential advisor. Miss Baker was a skilled grassroots organizer who believed that everyday people were fully capable of making the decisions that impacted their lives. Miss Baker was uninterested in telling people what to do and fully invested in providing people with the knowledge and skills they needed to bring about the change they wanted. Miss Baker was fond of saying, give light and people will find the way. And while the results of her organizing always differed, depending on the people's vision of their own future, she always began in the same place. To all who would listen, Miss Baker advised, start where the people are, with what they know and what they think they know, and with what they understand and what they misunderstand. And then you build from there. Two years ago, I participated in a keynote conversation on teaching hard history at the annual conference of the Virginia Council for the Social Studies with elementary school educator Chris Matthews. After our chat, a teacher approached me. She informed me that she taught fourth grade at a predominantly white elementary school and had recently reached the disturbing conclusion that her students, and by inference all those of their generation, lacked empathy. A startling statement to say the least. I pushed back, saying that her conclusion was overly broad. But she insisted, explaining that she had recently shown her class images of immigrant children, forcibly separated from their parents being warehoused at the southern border. And the students were unfazed. They had almost no reaction. I tried to explain that there was more to it, but she stood firm. These students lacked empathy, period. We were at loggerheads, so I asked her to do me a favor the next time her class met. I asked her to show her students one of those ASPCA commercials that air at 2 in the morning, the ones featuring Sarah McLaughlin singing In the Arms of an Angel, while images of a puppy missing an eye and a cat short a couple of legs flash across the screen to see how her students reacted. The teacher looked at me quizzically, but promised to do so. Not long after that, I heard from the teacher. She did as I had asked and was shocked by her students' response. Within moments of playing the commercial, her fourth graders, the same ones who had been totally unmoved by the child crisis at the border, they were fully animated, upset that animals could be treated so cruelly. Her students didn't lack empathy or compassion. They fully felt the pain of suffering animals. They just lacked compassion for children of color who were suffering. While shocking, this is not surprising. We condition children to be compassionate toward animals. We tell them to treat dogs and cats kindly, that they are deserving of our love, and we model this behavior for them. But we fail to provide equivalent instruction when it comes to children of color. In the absence of those specific conversations, kids default 
to the dominant view that children of color, even those in crisis, are somehow not deserving of our care or concern. Ella Baker was not a teacher. She was an organizer. But she understood that effective teaching was just like effective organizing. You have to listen. You have to be honest. You have to be open to new ideas. You have to be bold in your instruction. And most importantly, you have to start where the students are. Start with what they know and what they think they know. Start with what they understand and what they misunderstand. And then you build from there. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. We hear a lot about creating safe spaces for our students. But safe does not necessarily mean comfortable. As high school English teacher Matthew Kay explains, you can be profoundly uncomfortable and still feel safe. After all, that's where learning takes place. Matthew is the author of Not Light But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations. In this episode, he talks with my co-host Bethany J about how to create classroom environments where students are willing to take risks, to share their experiences, and to be vulnerable enough to admit what they don't know. I'm so glad you could join us. talking with Matthew Kay, whose book, Not Light But Fire, made a big splash in my own classroom this past year. And so I'm really excited that you're here to talk with us about it. Thanks for having me. I thought we might begin by addressing the elephant in the room and thinking about these different pieces of legislation about critical race theory. What do you think that actually does and doesn't mean for real classroom instruction? Well, I think leading race conversations for teachers always took skill, but now it takes bravery, too. Mm -hmm. My biggest concern now is that on top of all that it takes to do it well, now it requires a teacher in some communities to be brave enough to even try. Mm -hmm. Because one of the worst things about these laws is it gives parents and community members who may be of ill will ammunition to go after teachers for anything because it's all interpretations like i taught a lesson about martin luther king oh you're trying to indoctrinate you know <laughs> the definition of critical race theory is so nebulous and it's all over the place which means that every single lesson every single unit that someone doesn't like they now will start inquiries about it they'll now be throwing it up on social media and so I'm concerned that even if a teacher does what they need to do to keep the law, to abide by it, they need bravery to even attempt the process at all. Because even doing it the right way, you're still going to get in trouble. Yeah, the way some of the laws are written, it appears that discussions in any classroom that takes historical actors or literary figures' identity into consideration, racial identity, ethnic identity, gender identity into consideration, the laws are written so broadly that it almost precludes conversations of that kind or makes them, as you say, dangerous for teachers requiring some bravery. Well, it seems like they're written for that purpose, for them to be just broad enough 
to hobble all discussion about race. Because, you know, if you squint your eyes and look sideways at it, everything is going to be critical race theory that mentions race. Yeah. And I worry teachers are going to make the understandable choice to say, I've got to keep my job. And then the flip side of that, the potential sort of brain drain, you know, from teaching of those who say, well, forget it. This is no longer what I intended to do. And having some of our best people decide that this profession in certain places is no longer viable to them, which is an equally terrible outcome of these kind of laws. Absolutely. You have certainly, in your own classroom, made it practice to facilitate these honest race conversations. And so as we're talking about teachers needing some bravery to approach these conversations in the coming year, can you talk a little bit about the benefits that you've found for your students, for your classroom, when you're really able to engage in these very difficult learning experiences? The most basic benefit is the students like the units better. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there's this assumption that because we're talking about race, we are talking just about hardship or mm-hmm. we are putting these kids through struggle. And that's inaccurate if you're doing it right. My students like Lord of the Flies better because I bring a racial lens to it. That makes it more interesting. Other than that, it's dry. <laughs> <laughs> and for my colleagues who teach history, it's the same kind of thing. That particular lens gives you more to talk about. It gives them stuff to debate. It gives them stuff to connect to how the world is now. And that makes kids like units better. And that's the biggest thing I sell to my student teachers. Like, if you want your kids to be more plugged into your units, don't ignore race. It's not even add race to it. It's just don't ignore it when it's obvious. (laughs) Don't ignore it. (laughs) Engage it. It's there. Yes, occasionally, if you learn something about privilege and you have white skin, that could be a uncomfortable class, right? But uncomfortable doesn't have to mean not safe. Like, it just means, oh, oof, you know, I learned something and it made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'll survive that. (laughs) Which, by the way, is one of my biggest aha moments about all of these laws being passed is that it assumes the worst about their kids. Yeah. They're like, my kids can't handle this. And I'm like, my kids can. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, why can't your kids handle this? I don't understand why your kid cannot wrap their mind around the idea that someone can be an objectively bad person for owning enslaved people and also be a brilliant mind on how to design a country. Like those two truths can be true. And I don't understand why you think that your kids can't wrestle with that because mine can. My kids find it an intriguing thing to talk about. Apparently your kids are going to crawl into a ball and quit. (laughs) Like I, I, I don't understand. It's like, I believe more in your children than you believe in your own. Right. And the other thing that it assumes is that our students aren't encountering that information elsewhere, right? Yeah. When if we don't talk to our students about privilege in classrooms, they're still encountering the same kind of information. We're just giving them less tools to process and make sense of it by avoiding it in the classroom. Absolutely. The history of keeping stuff from children is not particularly successful history. (laughs) The history of like abstinence only education or Mm -hmm. like the D.A.R.E. program or (laughs) like (laughs) these are not roaring successes. (laughs) And why people think that this particular attempt at censorship is going to be any better. Mm -hmm. The era of being able to lock your kids up in your own little information bubble is quickly ending as connected as the world is, they're going to be encountering ideas on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and whatever they invent next year. If anything, it would make sense for you to actually want your local school to be kicking the ideas around. Because other than that, they're going to get it on YouTube. And the internet is probably the worst place for students to be encountering these ideas without any tools to understand them or to process them. We all know that the Internet is the absolute opposite of a safe space. (laughs) Yeah. So that leads me to thinking about another benefit of doing this in a classroom is that teachers like you can make the classroom a safe space for students to explore these ideas with an authority figure who's there to guide them. What does safe space mean in your classroom? I think... First, it's important to address the myth-making around safe space. 
when both bad actors and just confused people misinterpret the term safe space, they think that it just means everyone's comfortable, Mm. that no one feels challenged in like this t-ball everybody wins kind of (laughs) scenario everyone gets a trophy yeah yeah yeah. that's what they think it is but safe means safe safe means this curriculum this teacher my classmates the structure of this room is not meant to do me harm and i think anyone who disagrees with that i really have to question why they're around kids you can be profoundly uncomfortable by the things that you learn and still feel safe My daughter looks out the window when we're driving and she sees a truck and she says, car. And I will say, no, baby, that's a truck. It's not a car. And she's uncomfortable in that moment as that schema is, (laughs) as those new connections are being made in her brain. She's uncomfortable. She's like, I thought I had the road all figured out. And apparently (laughs) it's got wheels. It's got wheels. (laughs) Feels like a car to me. I don't understand what the issue is. Um, She's uncomfortable, but she feels safe with me. You know, your students should feel uncomfortable. And if they don't, they're not learning anything. When I say safe, I mean that in being uncomfortable, you're in a space where you feel willing to take risks. Mm. You feel willing to be vulnerable. You feel willing to say, I don't know, to ask somebody else, those kind of things. And a lot of classroom environments, that's not the case. Kids are in a state of constantly protecting themselves from the second they walk into the room. Instead of being in a space of, I am willing to be vulnerable in this learning space. I am willing to admit what I don't know publicly. When I say safe space, I mean a space where that happens. So as teachers, how do we actually create a safe space in our classroom? How do we make our classroom safe for our students who are in it every day? There are two things that I focus on. The first one is creating a house talk environment. The phrase house talk comes from when I was growing up, you know, there are some things where if I overheard my parents speaking, they'd say, hey, boy, this is house talk. And that meant, you know, (laughs) don't talk about it outside this house. What Um, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas discussions. (laughs) This is meant for the family. Mm -hmm. Like, don't go out there saying you heard mom (laughs) say this. Um, But when I'm describing house talk relationships in a house talk environment, I am definitely not referring to this bunker mentality (laughs) that some teachers can form with their kids where it's like, it's me and you on the inside and it's us against the world. Mm. That is not at all what we're speaking about. It's about making sure that students feel like people in this room, in this space, in this moment, care about them Mm. as people, not as their algorithmic potential to get A's and B's and C, but as like, I am a human with interests and this person who's leading this conversation knows that I'm a human with interests. I'm not some bot that you're throwing discussion Mm -hmm. prompts at to get certain responses, which to be frank, a lot of kids navigate school as if that's the case, which is troubling for us as teachers sometimes because we're trying to engage them in conversation. And they're like, whoa, you asking me this question that requires vulnerability. You want me to unpack my privilege or talk about this racialized violence that I went through and you don't know me. Mm. Um, it, you know, you don't know me at all. Why would I emote in front of you? Why would I admit weakness or admit frustration or admit confusion in front of you? Mm. And so the first part is creating activities that deal with that directly and trying to create more of that family environment so that kids are a little bit more willing to go there with you. What kind of activities do you do? Can you bring us yeah, to one or two? There's no shortage of them. I stole two of them, good news and high-grade compliments from a brilliant colleague I had, Zach Chase. In my class, I noticed that my kids loved me. And in his class, I noticed that they loved each other. Mm. And I would look and I'd be like, I want what he's got. <laughs> like, I want that. <laughs> that's sustainable. Yeah. As I get less and less cool and more and more corny, <laughs> as I get older, that's going to remain. So what's he doing? Once the dad jokes come into exactly. the Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy when I'm 22 years old. But yeah. Now at 37, if it was just me, that would not get the job done. <laughs> but his stuff was sustainable. And so good news and high-grade compliments, I always want to make sure I publicly give credit to him because I saw them in his class. Good news is where at the top of the week they share something good that's going on in their lives, and it could be something as small as I had a good breakfast or as large as my cousin is out of prison. And we encourage them to share amongst themselves and ask each other questions and those kind of things. And high-grade compliments, 
is when you know you, you have the kids think about or journal about something that they appreciate about a classmate and then they share it publicly. The one from my class that I didn't steal um, <laughs> is burn five. It essentially means I spend the top of every class speaking to them human to human, not teacher to student. Whether it's 30 seconds, 90 seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes, depending on whatever's planned that day. We'll talk about like who won the Sixers game or how did the prom go, mm-hmm. or et cetera, et cetera. Those kind of things. So I can make sure that that interpersonal stuff isn't happening in a garbage time. It's happening at the top of the lesson. It's the most important thing. Okay, now let's do some teaching and learning. We need to build a space where kids feel comfortable in a world of social media where all of their flaws can be put on blast immediately. Mm. How dare you have a question about this? How dare you be confused about this? Shouldn't you know all of these things? Shouldn't you blah, blah, blah. That's their existence. You make a mistake, you ask a quote unquote dumb question in class, someone tweets about it and thousands of people know about it by noon. Right. That's terrifying. Is the assumption with house talk that what a student says in moments of vulnerability or just in general in your classroom is not going to be sort of thrown back at them later in the school day or on social media? Like, is that an assumption that is implicit or explicit as you're creating the safe space in your classroom? It has been more implicit than explicit. My biggest thing isn't don't do it. I'm trying to change the relationships amongst the kids so kids don't want to do it. Right. You don't want to put that kid on blast because they didn't put you on blast when you were confused about something. Yep. Let's say if a kid shares for good news, hey, I'm celebrating the Eid holiday with my family and a kid raised their hand who's not familiar with that and he says, I don't know what that holiday is. And they share. It's a little bit harder 20 minutes later if one of those kids makes, you know, if they speak inelegantly about a specific race issue or whatever, it's just a little bit harder for that other kid in that exchange to not give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. They're like, well, we just kind of bonded over this. I know that's a good dude. So they're in a space where like, I don't really want to own you. Like social media, so-and-so owns. I don't want my kids to want to own each other. And that's why I think house talk is necessary if you are trying to have race conversations and other sensitive conversations in class because the outside world is teaching them the exact opposite, to own each other, to embarrass each other, to put stuff out there. Mm. In a house talk environment, it's kind of like, we don't want to do that to each other. We want to take care of each other. We're all trying to learn here. Yeah. If you're doing all of that, you're making great gains towards a safe space. Unfortunately, that's only half of it. The other half is an environment that celebrates and encourages authentic listening. The focus has got to shift from what can I say, how often can I say it, to what can I hear from my classmates, how can I analyze that, how can I make sure that everyone in this space feels like they're being listened to. The adult world is really not geared towards listening, and a lot of school is really not geared towards listening, so I need to not make assumptions that these kids know how to listen to each other before they come to my class. And... I have to realize that it's not something I can punish my way into. I've got to teach them how to be better listeners. I take a skills-based approach to listening. So I have three skills that we work on. The first is listening patiently, and that means making a conscious effort to show the person that is speaking that I am listening to you. So when we work that skill, we talk about nonverbals. What nonverbals are we giving the person who's speaking? We talk about you know, stuff like eye contact and those kind of things. And we talk about what things shouldn't we do, like raise our hands when other people are speaking, interrupt, stuff like that. And we have a lot of reflections on what we consider to be our strengths with listening patiently and what we don't. The second one is listening actively. And that means not only showing the speaker that I am listening to you, but also directly engaging the ideas that they are saying. And so I'm not just looking at you and smiling and nodding to be good, quote unquote. I'm actually dealing with the things that are coming out of your mouth. And some ways that I help kids do this is I will, for instance, have them take notes on what their classmates are saying, or I'll give them sentence starters to show, I have heard what you are saying, and this is how I respond. I disagree, or I'm not sure if this holds water, or I'm going to build off what so-and-so just said. And the last one is to police your voice. And that means you are aware of how much space you are taking up in any given moment in a conversation. In a lot of classrooms before they get to me, they have been rewarded for talking a lot. 
for raising their hand a lot for dominating the classroom. And that's understandable because a lot of times teachers are like, anytime a kid raises their hand, I'm happy. <laughs> and so they've been rewarded for that for their entire school career. But then when they get to me, they're in a space where they're not just rewarded for raising their hand. They need to raise their hand, say their piece and get out, mm. get back to listening. And a second thing that's important is this idea of whose voice gets to be centered for certain conversations. Mm. And I want to build an awareness in kids of like, in this particular conversation, we have to make sure that this kid is heard. I still can speak. I still can share my opinion. But this kid's voice needs to be heard if they want to, of course, if they want to share. The example that I could give is a student who has an immigrant experience and we're discussing immigration they should get a chance to speak. <laughs> that doesn't mean they should be forced to speak, but students should be aware that if they're speaking so much and this kid hasn't had a chance <laughs> to speak or this kid raised their hand and they get frustrated because they never get called on, that's not good. Yeah. Taking that skills-based approach that allows us to get really meta about it and talk about like, how well did we listen to each other just then? It's like, oh, actually I wasn't so good. My brain was somewhere else. Like try to encourage those kind of conversations among the students so that when we start talking about tough stuff, kids are aware, hey, if I share my story, it's probably in better hands. Yeah. One of the things with listening patiently, and this was an aha moment for me when I read the book, if you're so focused on what you have to say, that your hands up in the middle before somebody else has finished their thought, you're not really listening to that person. And the idea of, look, hands shouldn't be raised until the previous person has finished talking, to me, feels like a game changer in the classroom. The funny thing about that is every single year, I get emails and text messages from former students and mentees who are frustrated that in college people are raising their hand before they're finished speaking. <laughs> it makes them furious because it's one of the things that in my classroom was a rule and it's kind of spread throughout you know, our school. So they're kind of used to this idea of, you know, when I'm speaking, everyone else is making a concerted effort to show me that they're listening to me. They go out to college and all of a sudden people have their hands up when they're <laughs> speaking. They're like, what is this? Um, and they get very frustrated. You know, they get used to respect and they get used to demanding it. And some of them will demand it in class. Excuse me, I'm not finished speaking. Can you put your hand down? <laughs> I think that Anything that makes the kids used to demanding respect, I'm going to be here for all the time anyway. Yeah. And you talk a lot about your own modeling of listening patiently and listening actively for students and how they pick up on that, doing things like referring to, well, I'm going to pick up on what Matt said about X with my thought about Y, creating those conversational threads consciously. And honoring what's been said before, even if you're disagreeing with it. Mm -hmm. I hear what so-and-so said. Here's what I think about that. All of that, I think, are not only essential classroom skills, but like essential human skills, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you know, we've all been in those conversations with people across a dinner table or across a conference table at a meeting where you, you know that nobody's listening to you. They're just planning the next thing to say. Mm -hmm. And by you modeling that in the front of the classroom and all of us as teachers modeling that in the front of the classroom, I think that can have a real impact. Sure. And the beautiful thing about me modeling it is how far from perfect I am. I'm going to interrupt students out of excitement. <laughs> and I know it because it's a weakness of mine. Like I'm going to interrupt <laughs> folks <laughs> out of excitement and this encourages their agency to say, hold on, Mr. K, I wasn't finished, which to me is so important, you know, with me as an authority figure. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not an authority figure in the classroom. It's my classroom. I'm the boss. I give the <laughs> grades. <laughs> they don't give me grades. So as student centered as I am, like, it's silly to not acknowledge that you're the lead personality in the classroom for better or for worse. And to give them ammunition to use to advocate for themselves I think is a side benefit because, you know, I'm going to be far from perfect with my listening with them. And it gives me a chance to go, oh, my bad, I'm sorry. And just model that that's not weakness to just say, my bad, I'm sorry, which I want them to be doing when they mess up. I want them saying, my bad, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, conversation, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. What do we do if that safe space breaks down? What if a student says X? What if a student comes from a really entrenched political position and is combative in the classroom? What have you done when the safe space has broken down? The first thing is trying to determine what has happened. Is what you're seeing bullying? Is what you're seeing trollish behavior? If it's bullying or trollish behavior and you're certain of that, then you reach into your bag of tools for whenever, you know, kids are misbehaving in class. That's a discipline issue. I think for students who are speaking to wound deliberately and to troll, I think that's the moment in my classroom where you will see a different me. And I try to make that as stark as possible. I try to deliberately from the very beginning be very brusque. And very like, we don't do that here ever. And then I'll like to slap a smile right back on and go right back. I change everything about my demeanor for those 10 seconds. And then I go right back. I try to make sure I, it's like, this isn't my persona. I'm not one of those don't smile till December types who just doesn't, who acts like they don't like kids. But the first level of that defense is making sure they see a clear change in my entire demeanor when those things happen. If you keep doing it, then you have to leave the room. You have to go to the office, you have to go to your advisor, you have to get out of my sight because you're mean. And this is not a place where we're mean. With trolling and mean behavior, make the lines as clear to students as possible. Like there's a difference between values, conflicts, and trollish behavior Mm. and bullying. We can disagree and have different values on things. And that's okay. Can you give us an example of a values conflict? Uh, Yeah. Immigration. There are some folks who believe that we need a super secure, hard border where people cannot get in. And some people believe that we do not need that. And that's a, you know, a political difference that they hear in the adult world that could be filtered down into your classroom if you happen to be discussing an issue that engages immigration. Hopefully there's something about the way your class is engaged immigration where the things they're going back and forth about are fact-based. Yep. They aren't dealing in fake news. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. dealing in fact-based mm-hmm. issues. And then they're kicking ideas around. And those ideas might be rooted in different values about, quote-unquote, secure borders. Now, once they start getting into the space of calling people aliens and saying right, people right. are thugs with, like, calves the size of watermelons or whatever that dude said, like, <laughs> once, <laughs> once they get into that kind of stuff, then we're in trolling behavior. Right. And it's not just the language. It's the intent. You could be just as racist as that guy and not say that and still get checked by me. I'm like, you said it very sweetly, but you're trying to instigate. That's an instigation. But I think kids can have disagreements and they can be deeply felt, like the kind of stuff that's learned at their grandfather's knee, Mm -hmm. like deeply felt. Those conflicts can emerge. But there's a difference between that and speaking to wound, speaking to instigate, speaking to, you know, inflame. And we haven't made things easier, by the way, for kids, because we see adults and politicians name calling (laughs) and doing all those things and calling it discourse. So we're not modeling proper behavior. Yeah, we're not uh, modeling. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So we thank you, adult world, for making our job a little harder. But, you know, I believe that there's very clear difference between a values conflict and trollish behavior, and they don't have to lead to each other. Yeah. But if the issue is student says something that reflects a political view that's unpopular and it's within the scope of the conversation, then that's where the emphasis on listening matters the most because the other kids do have to listen to that. It's a conversation. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's not an echo chamber. And so if they, they have to listen to that, but also that kid 
has to listen to everybody else. If you set up your structures like I do in my class, it falls under the category of listen actively. All the students, they have to take notes during all of our class conversations, you know, pull out some things that their classmates say that they find intriguing or they disagree with or stuff like that. And then in our analytical essays for the quarter, they have to cite their classmates' contributions to our conversation in their essays. So they get to write about it and engage it. And so if you set up the listening actively structures and the kids are following them, that means that you've taken a little bit of the teeth out of some of those exchanges Mm. because that kid can't just get up on his soapbox and just like, well, this is what I think. This is what I think. And then not be accountable for what else happens in the room. Mm -hmm. They still have to listen to everyone else if they want to get a good grade, at least. (laughs) Um, And also in order to get praise from me. And I don't put the value on you being a loud mouth. I put the value on how well are you listening to your colleagues? The other thing is, as far as debates are concerned, a lot of times those kind of moments happen that you describe, and it's a little bit not their fault. It's not the kid's fault. Um, it's our fault. It was poor planning. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's not on them. <laughs> One of the things that I often see newer teachers do is I'll see in a lesson plan, students will have a discussion. How is this discussion happening? You know, what are the questions you're asking them to consider? What are the sources? You know, what information are you providing them with? What sources are they looking at, you know, in order to sort of gather information? Like discussion doesn't just happen magically. Discussion takes planning. And a lot of that planning has to do with providing students with the necessary context that they need to enter into that discussion. I use an example and you can find this video on YouTube. This teacher, he had his students having the Colin Kaepernick debate. In his introduction, he says, for those who don't know, Colin Kaepernick is a football player who has recently started, blah, blah, blah. And then he gives the prompt, is he right? And I'm listening to it as a teacher. And I'm like, if you have to tell them who Colin Kaepernick is. You haven't done the work. The same day you're doing the debate. (laughs) (laughs) Then all that you're going to get from the young people in front of you is what they hear at the dining room table. Yeah, You haven't taught anything. They haven't discussed the history of protest. They haven't done any of the pre-work. So, of course, later in the video, a kid says, if he doesn't like it here, then he can just leave. And I'm like, well, what do you expect? <laughs> like That error was made way before that moment right? when you had decided to have a debate without teaching them anything about Colin Kaepernick or contextualizing it in whatever subject. I'm watching the thing and I'm like, I don't even know what subject right. Where this is. Where is this? Yeah. What, what class is this? Is this, this? history yeah. class? Is this English class? <laughs> and I should be able to know right off the bat. And I see so much of that. We have a lot of debates where we're like, stand on this side if you think this, stand on this side if you think this, now go, mm-hmm. right? And essentially, all you're getting is, this is what I think. And people are like, well, this is what I think. And there's no learning happen. It's just like tennis. They're just like hitting the ball back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> and then if it's spirited, the teacher says, good job, that was good. And if it's a little bit over-spirited, they say, oh, these kids are too immature. They don't know how to. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you didn't ask them to engage anything. You just said, are they right? How are you contextualizing the thing you're discussing in prior learning that the kids have done? Mm -hmm. Or are you saying, Colin Kaepernick is a football player. By the way, do you agree with his protest? (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's going to end poorly. Right. He's a football player who hates the police. Yes. (laughs) Discuss. Discuss. (laughs) You know, all you've done is replicate the comment section under a YouTube video. Right, right. These difficult conversations, like you brought up with the Kaepernick example, is not possible unless we are also making good curricular decisions. And you brought up what not to do, and I'm I'm going to steal uh, (laughs) that conversation from you and show that video in my own class when I'm back in my methods classroom this year. Can you give us an example of how you've approached researching and planning for a particularly difficult lesson in your classrooms? Hmm. An example would be how I approach Jim Crow. When I'm teaching Richard Wright's native son, the character is from the Jim Crow South. And I want my students to be able to fully contextualize this character's upbringing as the upbringing that a lot of folks had and maybe even their parents or grandparents. I have a slideshow that I work with and 
I isolate specific Jim Crow laws, about six or seven of them, and I put them up on the board. Like, you're not allowed to share books or your dead can't be buried in the same graveyard, you know, those kind of things. And what we try to do is I ask the kids, why do you think this law existed? Outside of racism, let's assume they're all racist. <laughs> like they're mm-hmm. all racist. Mm-hmm. Um, what specific racist reason <laughs> um, <laughs> does this uh, cause this go? And, and they said, you can't share books. And the kids are like, well, maybe they want to keep the books out of the hands of black schools because they're underfunding the black schools. So therefore, and the kids kick those ideas around just as a way to get a start. And some of those are uncomfortable because, you know, they might even see direct ties to like the bad funding in these Jim Crow schools to the bad funding in the schools in Philadelphia where I teach, Mm -hmm. or they have a rule about black men can't cut white women's hair. (laughs) And the kids always jump immediately to like, well, you know, they're afraid of black men uh, being rapists and stuff like that. And that hits home for some of the kids on the way they've been treated or kids from interracial families or those kind of things. But through the lens of just looking at the loss, what could they be thinking? I found to be a way to get them attached to this character and connect their own lives and the history. And so they can better analyze the book. The other similar conversation is we look at the term ghetto and I do who, what, where, when, why. Like, what are the assumptions about this word? What are some of the connotations and denotations of the word? And it's like, who? Who lives there? What? What do you find there? What don't you find there? And they're like, grocery stores. Oh, wow. Yeah. We go through all of those things for the perception. And then when we get to when, we talk about redlining and all those kind of things. But that simple structure of who, what, where, when with a word, it helps kids, again, connect their own experiences and the things that they've heard about a phrase that shows up in the book that we're reading. And that's my goal. Mm -hmm. I want them to be able to meaningfully connect their experiences to what we're learning and even more so to own what they don't know. Like, I don't know where this word came from. Because some of them know how that word was used in World War II with Jewish people in Europe. Some people don't. So it gives the kids a chance to get that sharing in a very low stakes environment. Mm. It's like, well, I've heard it this way. And like, oh, okay. And it gets a time for me to do that without a lecture. They get to share their knowledge. So I'm not framing the conversation in a, is Kaepernick right or wrong kind of way. Right, right. We're going to gather information. We're going to do some inquiry. We're going to try to figure out, why do I think they wrote that law? Why do I think they do that? Okay, we can actually research that now. Mm -hmm. And then if we want to have a debate, we can have a debate, but we can have a debate when we've already teased out the things that are worth teasing and where the kids aren't just going to eventually graduate to throwing barbs at each other. Yeah, and a lot of what I'm hearing is really being conscious as a teacher of the different contexts that your students need. You know, the most shocking things that we're going to talk to students about are the things that need context the most Mm -hmm. before you just throw them at them in front of the classroom. The other thing that I find newer teachers do, I call it a shock and awe kind of teaching. You know, I'm going to grab students' attention with something that is very shocking. And then we're going to sort of unpack from there. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of beginning a unit on Jim Crow with a graphic lynching image that you haven't prepared students for. And that's not really creating the safe space in your classroom, or that's not really going to lead to the great conversations that you want. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we associate crying or shouting or any of those displays of emotion as engagement, Mm -hmm. or even worse, as learning. And sometimes, you know, we'll walk and say, that was a good day. It got deep. Like, all you did is make them upset. Yeah. You made them nervous to come to class the next day. Yeah. (laughs) Now they're nervous to come to class. Like, you haven't. And so I respect the intention, but we need to make sure we know what learning looks like. And teachers of goodwill make those kind of mistakes. Mm -hmm. I know that I have made those kind of mistakes because we want to grab kids' attention because that's the whole ballgame. So I respect the instinct and I'm a little easier on teachers than some folks in the social media world might be when they go a little far trying to grab attention. Yeah. And it also goes to the intent, right? You know, like, what's the intent yeah, with yeah. that? Is it to foster a good conversation or is it yeah. to, yeah. It can be bad practice. Right. Like, it could be something that shouldn't be repeated. <laughs> it can be mm-hmm. something that they need to apologize for the next day. All of those things I have done. And I am 
always apologizing to my kids. I'm like, oh, uh, too far? Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, I, uh, like, that's, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there is a little bit of energy that I just want to acknowledge uh, out there that is just, like, really hard on teachers right now. Um, oh, yeah. It's like you're simultaneously supposed to be brave enough to have conversations and then also perfect at having them. Right, <laughs> that's, right. That is tough. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources, like how to check your lessons for unconscious bias, as well as a full transcript, complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcast. Once again, here's my co-host, Bethany J and her conversation with educator Matthew Kay. One of the things that is very similar between teaching English, as you do, and teaching history, and there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of potential, I think, for interdisciplinary work between history teachers and English teachers in high schools. But one of the many similarities is the fact that students are going to encounter outdated sensitive or downright offensive language, images, or ideas in the different source material that we deal with. You've tackled that kind of material in your classroom, you know, particularly the N-word as it appears in different source material that you use. I know many of my students are very worried, like you say, about People are hard on teachers and they're worried about showing students different sources and the language that might be in sources or even the ideas that might be in sources. And they're worried about ending up on the, uh, you know, on Facebook or, you know, on the local news the next day. So can you talk with us a little bit about how you kind of handled that kind of material in your in your classroom? Well, unfortunately, I can't promise that folks aren't going to end up on Facebook or the news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want them to be on the news because they're doing something right. If you're on the news because you're, you know, disturbing a, a you know, dangerous or, or racist status quo, then unfortunately that, that that's the nature of the business right now. I just don't want folks on the news for some for bad pedagogy or something careless, um, something that with more re- reflection they would have done differently. Um, as far as when I talk about the N-word, what's very important about that conversation is how necessary it is to really understand Kindred, which is the text that they're reading. So Octavia Butler's Kindred, the story takes place in the mid-70s. The protagonist, Dana, she's transported back in time to to the antebellum South and to the bedroom of this little white boy, and he uses the N-word in a super casual, not very mindful way, because that's just how he addresses black people. That word is the first thing that Octavia Butler has this character wrestle with before she wrestles with all of the other horrible things that enslaved people have to deal with. The first injustice that she faces is language. Which prompts then your conversation about it in your classroom. Exactly. Octavia Butler is doing something very specific in that scene with her use of the word and you're not really getting kindred, like getting it, getting it, unless you have that conversation. And it's important that we don't skip how important it is because sometimes it's not as important. (laughs) If you're reading a book and it has the N-word in it um, because it's a historical document and that's what they called black people then, um, it might be enough to say, hey, look, reminder, you're going to see this word. Here's why we're looking at this text. Boom. And keep moving. Um, Because that isn't why you're reading it. On the English end, I've seen teachers mistakenly do that with Huck Finn. And they'll make two days out of like, hey, Mark Twain uses, you know, the N-word 219 times in the book. And they'll read all these articles about like versions of it that don't have the N-word and all those kind of things. And they'll focus on it as if that's the thing they're teaching <laughs> with the book. They won't talk about anything right. else. And so, and they'll, and they'll even ask disingenuous questions like, should we even be reading the book? And they're like, yo, I just put my name in this book. Of course we're going to read it. Like you just handed it out. Isn't that your decision? Yeah. That's your decision. Why are you putting that on me? I, I'm just yeah. a 16 year old kid. Like what are you putting it on me for? You're the one who said we have to read it. Um, yeah. And 
I feel like if you're going to teach Huck Finn, then it's not because of the N-word. And if it is, then you shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> uh, but I'm assuming you're teaching it for other reasons, other themes. So then it, might, then it might be enough to not just dwell and be like, hey, look, here's why we're reading this book. Here's, you know, our general rulemaking around this word. And so that, that would follow for all instances that you mentioned, like with tough imagery or outdated ideas or stuff like that. First, you have to decide, is it absolutely necessary for you to highlight that thing in a way that takes up a lot of energy and air? Or are you making the problem worse by highlighting it that way? It's a subtle, but it's important instinct for us to, to develop. Like, does this need to be highlighted or does this need to be mentioned and just pushed forward? Right. And here's an example. I do a Supreme Court case law unit with my 10th graders. Um, and I made a mistake of not fully checking um, my student teacher's example that he was going to use because he's a brilliant student teacher. And I'm like, he's, he's got it. <laughs> and like the one time I didn't check it, <laughs> um, one of the justices used the R word to refer mm. to someone who has a mental difference. And as he was just reading it aloud, he was reading and he came across the word and, and internally I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> like, right, like, right. like, oops. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things. It was a perfect source for what he was trying to teach. It was perfectly aligned with the skills we were doing. Um, uh, it was perfectly aligned with what we were discussing. Like there was nothing wrong with the example. Um, but he said the word and then soon enough, and we're on zoom obviously also. Mm. <laughs> and so the kids immediately in the chat and yeah. say, excuse me, I just want to say something, Mr. So-and-so, you really shouldn't say that word. Da -da -da -da. And to his credit, that's why, you know, ho, ho, I was putting on him on blast in a good way. Um, to his credit, he immediately was like, oh, my bad. Like, oops, you are right. Thank you for bringing that up. My bad. <laughs> and then he pushed on with the rest of his lesson. But it was like an earnest, an earnest 10 seconds of no justification. No like, oh, this unit's perfect. Oh, stop being so sensitive. Oh, this, none of that. It, it was just my bad. And I'm sorry. You're right. I shouldn't say it. That's awesome. And he just moved on and just taught the rest of his awesome lesson. And I'm like, that's how you handle it. But, you know, the source itself, I would be sad if he felt like we couldn't use this source, even though it's perfect for what we're discussing, because it has this word in it. And like, it's a historical document. That's what they used to say. So, yeah. um, but just when you're reading aloud, you don't say it or you, if you get a chance to blank something out or whatever, you, you manage. Um, but, you know, it's subtle did subtle decisions that we make you were talking about um your your class on kindred what you actually did with the n-word was write the word out on the board in big all capital letters to sort of frame some in some ways the discussion that you were having with your students how did your questioning proceed from that kind of all right, here we are, right? This is, <laughs> this is what we're doing now. Then how do you sort of pull your students into that conversation? Yeah, well, what I did is try to replicate what the character is feeling engaging the word for the first time. Like she's not used to hearing it in, in like hard ER, like, you know, and all of its like viciousness. She's not used to hearing it. And she's especially not used to hearing it from like a little white boy. And um, so I put it on the board to just try to replicate what is your relationship with this word? What are you feeling right now in this moment? Um, and I, you know, that's the first prompt. What's your relationship to the word? And I encourage them to be honest. And the kids, you know, to their credit, normally are. Um, they're in a space where, like, you know, some kids are like, I use it all the time. I used it this morning. I use it, you know, like, I, this is, you know, this is part of my language. Um, and some kids are like, I was told never under any circumstances to ever, ever, ever use this word. And, you know, the kids in the former camp are, you know, they're all, they're all black, you know, <laughs> the kids in the latter camp are mixed. And there's a lot of complexity there. And basically, it's sharing first. Like a lot of the roots for the conversation, for it to be super student-centered, is me re-prompting off of what kids say, mm. um, which is one of those skills that I find, you know, it's most useful, but um, kind of, it's one of the things that's my biggest goal for student teachers is to get them good at re-prompting off of what kids say. Because I think that's, you know, a good portion of the whole ball game is that. Yeah. 
you know, if a, if an African American kid says, "Well, my mom said we should never use this word because it's the last thing that someone heard when they were lynched," and mm. I'm like, "Ah, interesting. Thank you for sharing that." Um, you know, does everyone understand that she said? And then I repeat back what was said. Um, and then you know, if a kid earlier had said something about reclaiming the word, right? I'll say. One group says, you know, that you can reclaim it. One group says that you can't. What do you think about that? And it's not like who's right. It's more right, like right. you set up the idea. That's how it turns into is Kaepernick right or wrong. It's more <laughs> like, what do you think about this? Like, uh, and, and then they go back and forth. Well, you can reclaim. No, you can't. And then we kick that around. And then we table that and say, thank you. And then I take two other kid experiences or three other kid experiences. Like, right, right. bring it up, then table it. Bring it up and table it. And you go in that routine. And um, with, with something like that N-word conversation, I did that for about a decade. You know, after the first couple of years, I had heard so many of the kids' responses that it was rare that a kid was saying that was something I was completely unprepared for. Right, right. Um, and so I was like, I knew it's like, well, when someone says this, then, <laughs> then, um, these are the kind of follow-ups to ask, um, which is why, you know, we should allow teachers obviously to teach the same thing <laughs> Yeah, right. A, a few times so we can get good at it, you know, for all, any administrators who are listening, <laughs> that makes things easier. I mean, one of the things that I, I like about how you discuss leading these conversations is that not every conversation needs to come to a resolution. You know, not every conversation needs to come to consensus and a decision among the classroom. Often the conversation itself is the point. Mm -hmm. And when we have the conversation, we can, like you say, just, all right, table it. Right. And, and let's, let's move on to the next, you know, to the next series of, of, uh, of issues that we're going to deal with. And I think often as teachers, you know, the instinct is to try to get everybody to the same place all the time, right? Because, you know, we're so used to assessment and we're so used to sort of thinking in that framework when you're having these conversations like, no, it's OK to just say, all right, here's where we are. Right. And now we're going to sort of move on, particularly when you're talking about students sort of sharing out their their own uh, experiences, you know, where there's not necessarily, there's not a right or a wrong here, right? That we can have the conversation and, and the conversation is the point. The other thing you brought up is, you know, you, you brought up administrators and your administrator, your principal, I believe it was, you know, walked into the room with, you know, the word and, you know, giant letters on the board. You know, in, in your case, your principal knew what you were doing and was supportive of it. And if you could talk a little bit about that kind of relationship. But then also, I don't think you would necessarily advise that all teachers, right, <laughs> take take that strategy uh, when, you know, when leading discussions of, of this kind. Um, so, you know, two different points if you want to sort of take them on. So he'd seen my unit plans. He'd seen where I, how I had built to this moment why I was having this moment, what was coming after this moment, and that this was above board. And so he, you know, as a leader, he stepped in and encouraged me. Um, so that's good. And so the things that lead to that are what I just described. Like, there's got to be a clear transparency. Like, this is what I'm planning. Here's why. That transparency has to go both ways. He's got to be able to go, yeah, I don't want you to do that. <laughs> and, I, and, and I have to be like, okay, you know, it's a two-way street there. I wanted to make sure it's super clear that that particular angle was something that I could take because of my unique privileges in that situation. My brown skin is such that I can do that. If I was white, I would not. That doesn't mean I can't have the conversation. And you can even use my chapter as a prompt. Not light. Chapter five, which is where the story is held. You can say, so there's this black guy and he does this <laughs> and, and, and I can't do this. Let's I'm not talk doing about that. It. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Let's talk about that. What rules am I honoring by not doing that? What rules? Right. Like there are societal rules about who can say it and who can't. And those rules make sense. And we can discuss them. We can unpack them. We can try to see where they come from, but we don't give each other permission to break them. If you say it, there will be consequences. Like if you as a white person says this word and then you justify it with say, well, it says it in the book. The people of color around you might be in a space where they're like, I don't like this person anymore. And that's well within their rights. 
given their histories with the word, they're not being hypersensitive that they're saying, I don't want to mess with you anymore. I don't want to, you know, work with you. Like that's well within and we need to understand that. And you're, you know, you're full of hubris if you think that those rules don't apply to you just because you're a scholar or just because you're a teacher or just because you voted a certain way or whatever, your skin's still white. Those are those rules. Now, can you discuss those rules? Absolutely. Um, they're worth discussing, um, you know, if they make sense in the unit that you're teaching. As we end our conversation, and we've thought about a couple of particular moments in, in your own classroom and a lot of kind of general ideas about how we might lead these sorts of conversations, what would you like to sort of leave teachers with, with as they're considering, you know, going back into the classroom in September maybe not having seen their kids in person for, you know, for over for a year or so. What would you like to leave our teachers with as they think about building relationships and trying to have, uh, have these sorts of conversations in their classrooms? I would like teachers, colleagues, <laughs> to be proud of themselves. Like, you made it. There's a whole lot out there that's hard on us and puts pressure on our shoulders. Like, we need to make sure that we do this. Like... In some spaces, it's like, we need to make sure that we catch the kids up. In other spaces, it's like, we need to make sure that we like solve racism this year (laughs) and everything in between. We need to fix, you know, and I was nervous about that discourse throughout the entire pandemic where it's like, let's reimagine schools. Let's do this. I'm like, sure. Yes, that would be good. Let's survive first. Like, let's make sure that, you know, when kids come back, you know. They feel loved and cared for mm. and taken care mm-hmm. of. You know, let's not put pressure on ourselves to 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 you know do everything because that pressure is probably going to be pretty violent when school starts. There's this idea that just teaching good lessons is somehow not enough. Right, right. Like teaching good units is not enough. Crafting good projects is not enough. You've got to also blank and. I'm more than a little wary about that because a lot of us are so close to our emotional capacity already and school hasn't even started. Yeah. And the kids, forget about it. I can't imagine being 15 years old living through these past two years. I I can't imagine it. And so to reject some of the pressure that's being put on us in this moment, I think is important. As far as race and equity is concerned and justice, my advice would be to try to avoid home run thinking, try to avoid, I'm going to teach this unit that's going to solve this. I'm going to teach this unit that's going to make them all understand all of their privileges. Instead, trying to find ways to layer in one or two good race conversations every unit. And that's not small. That's massive. I'm still trying to get to one to two every unit. (laughs) <laughs> where it makes sense. <laughs> right? And, and you know, and I'm still not there and I wrote a book about yeah. it. <laughs> like I think find a way one or two good race conversations, one or two good gender conversations, one or two good like where you apply that lens especially for history folks. We just, you know, apply that lens in whatever history moment you're you're working yourself through, just try to add one more perspective. But if you do that for every unit, that's massive. That's a massive undertaking um, that we're capable of. It's so big, but also it takes the pressure off of us at the same time. We're not trying to teach that one unit that, you know, solves everything. We're trying to feather it into our conversation about, you know, whatever moment in history <laughs> we're, t- we're talking about. Um, I think if you do that, then you're going to have enough stamina for the long haul. And as a bonus, you'll be able to fly a little bit under the radar of the, of the bad actors out there. The more you go into trying to have all of these pop-up conversations that are not related to your unit and you're just like, let's talk about white privilege. Let's talk about this election. Right. Let's talk about, you know, the more you do that, the more you're going to put target signs on you if you're surrounded by bad actors, which unfortunately a lot of us are discovering that we are. But if you're just like bringing in a discussion prompt that thoughtfully applies a race lens to the thing you're talking about, it's just good teaching and learning. Your admin will have an easier time having your back. 
your students are less likely to go home and say our lesson was blah blah, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it, in some like completely twisted way. It's just easy because they're just learning. They they're just mm-hmm. learning. They're like, well, and while discussing this, we also mentioned this. That's was the, yeah. <laughs> like, and so it feels like less of a thing. It's not cowardice to fly under the radar a little bit right now. It really mm-hmm. isn't. It's it's it still requires bravery to mention it at all. Yeah, but. There's no reason for putting unnecessary bullseyes on us by, you know, doing so many things that are outside of our curriculum and involving race. That's just infuse your curriculum with race. Make it the meaningful lens that it is for analysis and we'll be able to have successes. Thanks so much for having this conversation with us that both, I think, inspires and provides guidance for teachers who want to do this work, for all of us who want to do this work, but also gives us all grace to make mistakes and to work within what we know is doable, right, in our particular school, particular district, while still making an impact by infusing these conversations, as you say, throughout our curriculum. So thanks so much for being here. Your perspective as a teacher is so important. And I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. That that was fun. (laughs) It was. Matthew R.K. is an English teacher at the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. A proud product of the city's public schools, he is a columnist for education leadership and the author of Not Light But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations. Mr. K. is also the founder and executive director of the Philly Slam League. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFon. If you like what you've heard, Please share it with your friends and colleagues and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University and your host for Teaching Hard History.